So as we have heard, our theme for the Easter season we've just entered is we are the beautifully messy and messily beautiful practicing people of God. So far in this service, we have practiced welcome, we've practiced gratitude, we've practiced courage and listening and standing up to bullies. And with all this emphasis on practice, perhaps it's no surprise that this week, as I was pondering what I might share in the reflection today, the phrase that kept running through my mind was practicing resurrection, which begs the question, what on earth does it actually mean to practice resurrection anyway? I suspect this is not a question that would have occurred to me as a child growing up in the church, where resurrection was talked about really as a supernatural action that Jesus did through his divine power. An action Jesus did a few times in his ministry two or four other people as he brought back to life people who had recently died, such as Lazarus. But mostly, I heard about resurrection as the triumphant action that Jesus took three days after his crucifixion. His miraculous return to life accomplished, really, when we think about it, quite quickly. The entire story moves from Jesus being buried at the end of the day on Friday to being alive again by dawn Sunday morning when the women go to his tomb and find it empty. In this story, there is no place for the kind of practicing that Allison was describing in the children's time. Really no place for a learning curve or for those initial awkward failed attempts when we're trying to do something we're not yet very good at. Instead, what I was taught in the church pushed me to think about resurrection as an immediate one and done kind of action. Jesus was dead and now, hallelujah, he has brought himself back to life. I don't want to disparage this way of theologizing resurrection. I do think it offers us some valuable insights into who Jesus was and what his ministry was about. However, today I'd like to invite us to ponder resurrection from another angle. An angle that I hope will be helpful to us, especially as we lean into our identity as a practicing people of God, simultaneously messy and beautiful. So to ponder resurrection through this lens, let's turn to the two scripture texts that we heard read aloud and consider what they might show us about being people of God. And just a heads up, I'm probably not going to answer any of the questions that were coming to your mind <laughs> as you shared your noticings about these texts. 
When I looked at the text for this Sunday, it didn't surprise me to find this story of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus showing up as the gospel text. After all, today is the second Sunday of Easter. Last week, on Easter Sunday, we were focused on what occurred that first Easter morning. And now today, we're spending time with a story from the afternoon of that same day. However, this story from Exodus 15, yeah, it, it's a story that's familiar to me, but not one that I had ever really pondered much, or I'll be honest, had much desire to preach on. It just seemed like one of so many Exodus stories about the Israelites wandering in the desert and complaining about the conditions there. And I admit that I was initially baffled as to why Allison had chosen this text to pair with the gospel story. And I'm not sure that I even now know what was in your mind, Allison. But I sat with these two texts this week, and I began to see points of resonance between them. Both of them are stories of people who first are journeying, and second, who are doing so in distress. They have moved from jubilation and hope to having those hopes dashed. So first, let's consider the larger context of what the Israelites have been experiencing leading up to the story we just heard, this incident of the bitter water in the desert. For years, the Israelites had been enslaved in Egypt, enduring brutal, hard physical labor. They were so despised and feared by the Egyptians that Pharaoh had attempted to commit genocide against them by ordering all the Israelite baby boys to be killed. Yet at last, Pharaoh and the Egyptians had been so devastated by the 10 plagues that not only had Pharaoh finally agreed to let the people go, but their Egyptian neighbors had even sent them off with gold and silver. And then there was the dramatic showdown at the Red Sea with Pharaoh and his army in hot pursuit after the Israelites, cornering them between the army and the Red Sea in front of them. And in this desperate situation, the waters had parted before the Israelites, enabling them to cross through on the other side. And then the waters had drowned the army in pursuing them, their enemy of so many years. And so Exodus 15 opens on this high note with Moses and Miriam and the people performing the most exultant victory song and dance. They have escaped from the oppressive powers. And then we come to the text we listen to. They have been trekking through the desert for three days without water now. And they arrive at Mara with its springs of water. And turns out that water is undrinkable. The people have gone from the heights of joy and triumph to despair that they are about to die of thirst 
Is it any wonder that they're complaining? And if we look at the story from Luke's gospel, it's different. And yet there is kind of a similar emotional pattern. As the text opens, we see two disciples walking the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus, a village seven miles away. One of these disciples is identified as Cleopas. The other is unnamed in this text. However, an interpretation that I find plausible, that I like quite, quite a lot, is that this second disciple is Cleopas's wife, who in John's gospel is identified as Mary, one of the women who stood near the cross. And I mention this detail because I think it can help us better fill in the likely backstory for these two disciples. Probably, Mary and Cleopas live in the village of Emmaus, and they had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, likely with Jesus and other disciples. Perhaps they were even present at the Last Supper in the upper room, this Passover meal with their leader. From John's gospel, at least, we can surmise that they, or Mary anyway, were part of the group of Jesus followers who watched the crucifixion while the more prominent 12 disciples ran away. So two days earlier, they were enduring the trauma of seeing their leader tortured and executed as a political insurgent. Yesterday, they had spent the Sabbath mourning and in hiding, likely fearing for that knock on the door that would be their own arrest. And then this Sunday morning, they were baffled by this strange story of an empty tomb, a story which really hasn't resolved anything for them. It has only deepened their grief and bewilderment. Like the Israelites, Cleopas and Mary have gone in the space of just a few days from the heights of hope and expectant celebration to fear and despair. And we can hear this in the Lucan text. Notice, as they are explaining the recent events to this oddly uninformed stranger that they've encountered on the road, notice how they describe Jesus as a prophet mighty in word and deed, and then add, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Had hoped. And that hope has been dashed. I think there's another similarity between these two stories from Exodus and Luke. And that is that it's easy to read them in hindsight and chastise these people of God for not having enough faith to see beyond the bleakness of their immediate circumstances. In fact, in the Lucan narrative, the writer does exactly this and even puts those words into Jesus' mouth. As Jesus says to these disciples, oh, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had declared. 
honestly, this line makes me cringe every time I read this story. And I want to push back and say, really, Jesus? The prophecies are as clear as all that? Hmm. But I will admit that when it comes to the Israelite people, I have my own tendency to read them as being foolish and slow of heart. As I read these Exodus stories of how over and over again they are complaining about their conditions in the desert, even at times wishing themselves back into slavery in Egypt, and I wonder, will they ever learn? After all, we read these stories in hindsight, and we know that the dangerous conditions, the fear, the despair that the people are experiencing in this moment are not the end of the story. And not just in the larger biblical narrative arc, but in each of these texts that we heard tonight, by the end, conditions have changed dramatically. By the end of the Exodus story, the Israelites are camped at an, an oasis of 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. And at the end of the Gospel story, Cleopas and Mary are racing back to Jerusalem with the joyous news that, yes, Jesus is alive and they've seen him. The thing is, we may read these stories in hindsight. But that is not how any of us live our lives. Most of us, I imagine, can identify with the Israelites in the desert encountering the bitter water or with these disciples on the road to Emmaus in grief and bewilderment and dashed hopes. We can identify with these moments of facing a challenge that is painful, that is incredibly scary, that is so hard. For us, it might be a medical diagnosis that was not the news we wanted to hear, or a health condition that we expect to get worse, not better. It might be trying to care for someone we love who needs help, and yet it doesn't feel like our efforts are making anything better. It might be fighting for social or political change, well, Day after day, we see politicians working to pass obscene laws to not only maintain injustices, but to roll back civil rights that were gained years or decades ago. When we are journeying through what we might call these wilderness periods, we don't know the end of the story. And this is when we are called to practice resurrection. And I'm not talking about the three-day triumphant, all-powerful reversal that was my childhood understanding of Jesus' resurrection. 
Rather, I'm talking about the kind of practicing Allison was describing during the children's time. That hard work of trying to do something we don't feel very good at. Practicing that feels like attempting to juggle and just dropping the balls. And then picking them up and trying again. And doing this over and over and over. What I'm talking about is the hard work of daring to stay open to hope and to joy, even when what we're witnessing and experiencing would urge us otherwise. And what I'm talking about is the hard work of accompanying others through their wilderness periods. When we can't simply make things better for them, and yet we choose to stay present with them anyway. This is the hard work of practicing resurrection. I want to close this reflection by referencing a poem by Wendell Berry. And any of you who know this poem have probably been waiting through my entire reflection for me to bring it up. But if you're not familiar with Wendell Berry, he is a writer who works in various genres, including poetry, and he's also a longtime farmer, environmentalist, pacifist, and nonviolent activist. His work in life and on the page focuses on care for the earth and care for local communities. One of his best-known poems is entitled Manifesto, The Mad Farmer Liberation Front. And already the overtly political language of the title signals that this is a poem of social and political resistance. The opening lines of the poem I hear as a warning that if we structure our lives to prioritize financial gain and security, we will end up being used by oppressive systems of unregulated capitalism and corrupt power. As the poem says, when they want you to die for profit, they will let you know. But then the poem pivots, and the next lines go like this. So friends, every day do something that won't compute. Love the Lord, love the world, work for nothing, Take all that you have and be poor. Love someone who does not deserve it. The poem continues in this vein, urging us to take actions that may seem counterintuitive, such as ask questions that have no answers, and be joyful, though you have considered all the facts, as well as actions that require us to care far beyond the limits of our own lives. Actions such as invest in the millennium, plant sequoias. And then finally, the closing lines of this poem acknowledge how crazy or mad all these actions may seem. The poem finishes, be like the fox who makes more tracks than necessary 
some in the wrong direction. Practice resurrection. This is messy work, and it is hard work, and it is also beautiful and hopeful work. And so may God be with us as we try to practice resurrection. Thank you, Sarah. We're going to pass the mic, and if you have any thoughts on your heart that you want to share, or thoughts or responses, you can share them now, and then we'll get prayer requests and pray together. <laughs> 